at the time of the armistice, um, uh, cars came into town. Petrol had been very short, so they would have been used the minimum minimum rations. Mm. Sounding their horns at the harbour, the boats were blowing their hooters. And, and I always think around Fort Regent, it said that the, the garrison, the men of the garrison, there were soldiers there, lined the ramparts and waved down at the people in the street celebrating. So lots of, lots of, of happy moments and celebration. And being Jersey, of course, there would be some uh, alcohol involved and there would have been a few drunks, I think. Today is Armistice Day, marking the day and indeed the hour when the First World War ended at 11am in 1918. Many will be familiar with features of the Four Year War, the trenches, the bloody battles of the Somme and Ypres and the considerable loss of life. But what was the war's impact in Jersey and how did the island mark the end of hostilities 103 years ago? Ian Ronane, a published local historian with a particular interest in the 1418 conflict, joins us to share his knowledge of Jersey and the Great War. Ian, could you just describe on this day, Armistice Day, how did the armistice in 1918, how was it greeted in Jersey? Okay, well, um, so we're, we're at the end of a very long, painful war, and then we're at the end of a very, very long, painful year. Uh, it's always interesting, I think, to reflect on the fact that, unlike the Second World War, it wasn't obvious that the First War was coming to an end. And, um, you know, for the first half of, of 1918, the Allies were certainly on the back foot. The Germans were um, looking like they're going to win the war. So, so we went through a very difficult period. It was the toughest time in terms of the number of men dying. 1918 was the most uh, violent year as far as deaths concerned in Jersey's perspective. So lots of people had either suffered a loss or, or were still going to suffer a loss afterwards. Um, food was, was, while not short, there was lots of questions. There had been lots of questions about whether food would reach the island, fuel. Um, and, you know, the British government had been very forceful in terms of Jersey having to send more men, send potatoes, that's what we grew clearly, and, and send money. So, so it was a very difficult time. It was also, and I'm sure we'll talk about this, um, the Spanish flu had just hit Jersey and, and was, was waning at this point, but still very much uh, a dangerous and, and people scared about this thing. So a very difficult time. And then out of the blue almost comes the news that the, the war is, is ending. And, and you know, if you know the background armistice it was an agreed date time mm. hour when the war would end um it wasn't it didn't just sort of peter out or one side throw their hands up and su- surrender it was an agreed time so and that came quite late to jersey so most people the germans carried on fighting right to the end and and therefore um the war the horrible war was going on right up to right up to that point news came to jersey i mean there was indications in the newspapers that the war was coming towards an end austria had surrendered the turks had surrendered the ottoman turks and but germany hadn't and they were the main enemy so people were hopeful there was clearly mm. hope and and there was rumor and uh the day before armistice they'd been waiting outside the evening post offices which is where the news wires came in mm. and and hopeful of news it didn't come in that day most people went home disappointed and it finally did arrive, and, and the announcement was made that as of uh, 11 o'clock on the 11th of November, the war comes to an end. And um, so there wasn't time to prepare any great ceremonies or anything of that nature on that day. It was more spontaneous. And, and those people that were in Jersey, and remember a lot of people had left, thousands had gone to serve, women working in munitions industries, people had been dispersed through the war. Um, those that were here, um, understandably, m- made the most of it. And, you know, from... Um, Early morning, King Street began filling up with people, revelers. And um, at the time of the armistice, um, uh, cars came into town. Petrol had been very short, so they would have been used the minimum minimum rations. Mm. Sounding their horns at the harbour, 
the boats uh, were were were, sh- uh, were blowing their hooters, and and I always think around Fort Regent it said that the the garrison, the men of the garrison, there were soldiers there, lined the ramparts and waved down at the people in the street, celebrating. So lots of lots of, of happy moments and celebration and being jersey of course there would be some uh, alcohol involved and there would have been a few drunks i think yes yeah, so perhaps alcohol played its part perhaps it? perhaps <laughs> understandably having you know that kind of release that came out and you've mentioned about the, the the number of people who left the island to take part in the war effort just paint a picture on the scale of that yeah did most families have someone perhaps serving away and 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 also please just talk about how these people drifted back yeah, okay. So, I mean, it, it would have been a mixed picture. Um, there was lots of tension here in the islands during the war between town and country because the country families um, were, were able to apply for exemptions for their sons. Right up until 1918, it was largely dismissed after 1918. Mm. But a lot of men were kept back in the island to work the farms. That was our primary industry. Whereas from St. Helier, um, most sons went because they were, they were in occupations that were considered non-essential. So there was a bit of tension. Most families would have absolutely, um, if you had a boy or a father or, or of you know of military age, they would have either gone already as a volunteer or a conscript. We conscripted from early 1917, um, or they would be uh, they would be under orders to go. So so in 1918 they kind of um, removed all the exemptions that had been given out before and said you know everybody is now going to go. So and this was up to the age of 51. Now they they increased right. to 51 year old. Now mm. I always think that 51. In, in our world is not old. Of course, I'd say that, wouldn't I? But in 51, back in 1918, would have been a mm. good age. So, yeah, most families would have lost, would have had somebody fighting at the war and, and, or away serving. And, and or um, they, they uh, maybe a daughter gone to work in the munitions industry. We mm. sent hundreds to work in the munitions industry. Uh, women were serving in the armed forces by then and, 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 um, and, and voluntary aid detachments. Um, so there would have been lots of people scattered around uh, various places and um yeah so when the with the war ended of course mobilization didn't happen immediately that that was one of the the great bugbears of, of the soldiers was that the war was over they had served up, they'd signed up for the for the duration of the war but actually britain still needed its garrisons they mm. were occupying germany and they also didn't want to let the um the the soldiers flood back into the workplace so it had to be done carefully so um, men continued serving uh, and, and were gradually released from early 1919 onwards, largely. And they came back throughout all 1919. They would have come back. No ceremony, no bands greeting them. They would have come on an ordinary boat. You didn't know they were coming unless you got a telegram to say we were arriving. So they would have just, they would have just drifted back you know, um, and come back into the island that way. And tell me about the loss. Tell me about how many people died. Well, it's, it's still not... Completely clear, to be fair, because um, there, there are names still being uncovered uh, to this day. Uh, you know, if the research is done, there were, you know, Jersey um, sent maybe 8,000 men uh, or, or Jerseymen that were in the colonies that went or in the dominions that went. So 8,000 men, more than 1,500 dead, certainly, um, and um, probably more than that. Uh, and uh, so, you know, it, it's not an except. I don't, it is an exceptional number, of course, it is, it's an awful number, but it, it doesn't stand us out from other communities necessarily. It's no larger, no less. Um, but from an island of 50,000 people, it's an ex, you know, a really high, extraordinary number. And of course, for each of those deaths, there would have been two or three you know, badly um, um, physically wounded men and, of course, unbelievable amount of mentally scarred men. So, um, yeah, a significant loss. If you look at the, if you look at the census... Jersey's population goes down post-war. Now, that's not just through the deaths, of course, but um, 
you know, uh, people who went to work in, in, in the munitions factory, young ladies who discovered a life. You know, they had money in their pocket. They were you know, wearing different clothes. They were meeting. They were living on their own. Um, many would have decided maybe to stay there. Um, men that went and served abroad stayed abroad. They didn't come back. They'd, mar- they'd married people in Ireland and they'd married people in the UK and, and, and they'd met ladies in France. Mm. Or, or, you know. so, so, yeah, it was, a, it was a quite a disruptive period in terms of our, our demographics. It would, it would have been taken quite a few years to sort itself out if you look at the census figures. Mm. And tell me about the, 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 the German influence in Jersey. There were prisoners of war here, is that right? Yeah, there were. So there were two groups. It's interesting, there's two groups of Germans in Jersey. One were, one were the Germans living here. So people that were, had decided to move to Jersey for, for economic reasons or what have you, you know, a group of, of several hundred. And many of them were, were shipped off island um, throughout the war some at the beginning and some throughout, as, as enemy aliens. They were considered a threat, were sent and interred, uh, interned, excuse me. Um, and um, whether they came back or not, I don't know. I know some didn't come back. They weren't allowed to come back. There's some, there's some remarkable accounts in the archive of, of people that were forbidden to come back because they were considered, well, the enemy still even after the war. And, and those that remained had a very tough war. So they would have hopefully been re-ingratiating themselves back into our society. And then there was a group of Germans that was brought here as prisoners of war. They were brought in 1915 uh, to a very large camp in St. Juan's Bay. The, the, uh, the remnants of it is still there, if you mm. go and look carefully. Uh, and they were still there when the war ended. They were working in Jersey, and so they were working on farms. They were working at the docks, and um, they'd get the train in every day. There's great stories about them getting the train every day from St. Brellard's down to the docks, do their job at the docks. Uh, obviously, we, we, were sh- we were short of manpower. Mm. And uh, I think they were fairly trusted by then. You know, they, they weren't necessarily under guard or anything or, or, or under threat. But, yeah, they remained here until for another year. They, they went back in October 1919. So, you know, several thousand Germans were here. Um, and, um, yeah, the islanders, you know, were used to them. There's lots of... One of the things that, that keeps showing up as little trinkets and gifts and boxes, these things that they painted stuff and, and created boxes. So they must have had a strange relationship. And they... They all left on a boat and singing lustily as they left the harbour um, to their fallen comrades. Some of them had died while they were here and were buried in, in St. Brella's churchyard, which is why we have the Germans buried there during mm. the occupation. And presumably, was there a, a British garrison in Jersey as well? So there were, there were British troops as well as, as, as Jersey uh, militia? There were less. So, so um, what had happened was that there was a garrison here when the war broke out. They left to go and serve. They, they sent other troops in here to, ch- to train um, from South Staffordshire Regiment. They were here until 1917. They left um, and Jersey men that were unfit for active service, frontline service, in other words, were, were conscripted into what they called the Jersey Garrison Battalion, which, which replaced the Jersey militia. So about four or 500 men stationed at Fort Regent and in the barracks around the island, and they guarded the island. Um, they were supplemented as the war went on by men from uh, Manchester and Yorkshire and, and, and men, again, who would have been considered unfit for frontline service, they were sent here. So we had a, they, were, they were Jersey troops, not British troops. There would have been a handful of British troops, but they would have been Jersey men and, yes. and also uh, other other men. And there's a few of those still buried in Jersey. You come across them from time to time. That's interesting. Now tell me about, just going back on onto the impact of, mm. of, of um, on the island and particularly the losses that the island incurred. Mm-hmm. Um, first of all, um, was there any financial support either from the states or the British government? How, how were people able to recover both emotionally and financially? Yeah, okay, so um, yes, there, there was. Um, so yeah, obviously lots of, lots of um, breadwinners went away. So um, we fell back on the parish rates, uh, the parish 
uh, benefit system, if you like. So the, the parish constables would have, would have given out um, funding to families that needed it. There was large amounts of uh, fundraising went on, so lots of campaigns to raise money, partly for the troops but also for local causes. Really interesting challenge is that we had both British people here and French people, lots of French people, French nationals who had come to work on the farms. And, and there was some reluctance to hand them any local cash. And, and there's some very uh, grim stories of you know, if, if, if women with five children um, who, who had no money at all. And mm. there, were, there were campaigns locally to, to, to raise money for them. So, so there was given a certain amount. Um, Jersey didn't receive, so at the end of the war, Jersey didn't receive reparations from Britain. Um, Jersey actually had to end up paying money. Britain was after Jersey for contribution to the war effort. And um, we ended up giving a, a quite a lot of money under some pressure and duress. Not that we didn't feel it was a worthy cause, but, you know, being Jersey, we didn't necessarily want to hand over our mm. cash but we did, um, and so we, we contributed to the war effort. Um, and then after the war, um, uh, yeah, men would have men would have individually had to apply for for money to, to pay. They would have got there was lots of um, there were pensions. Men that had been wounded or mm. invalided, they received pensions, very token pensions. Uh, and there's some again, I've seen some awful documents where um, somebody's got multiple wounds, and and the pension, the person pecking checking them accepts this one and this one but not that one and not that one and reduces their pension accordingly you think how tough that must have been they must have also they also went to um the royal british legion that was something that formed after the war so mm. servicemen's organizations ex-servicemen's organizations began forming towards the end of the war and then afterwards and eventually amalgamated under the royal british uh, legion i think it's their 100th anniversary this mm. year actually and they would have gone and asked for money. Um, and again, there were some records. I saw the records many years ago. Very pitiful stories of men that I knew had won medals for bravery in uh, in France and Belgium. You know, going in and asking for five shillings or two shillings for their kids' shoes. And it must have been quite heartbreaking times. And and tell me um, uh, about how the the island marked the um, the war. Um, mm. you, am I right in saying that? For instance, the, the bodies that had been lost in France could, couldn't be returned to Jersey. Yeah, that's right. So very early on in the war, there was a realisation that, not uh, you know, from a British perspective, that, that there was going to be a class issue here, that, that people with money, families with money, could afford to have their loved ones' remains repatriated and buried in, in the local vault, and those that didn't, couldn't. And, and you know, Jer Britain went to war without any mechanism any kind of war registration war grave registration mechanism that mm. came out through the war before that you know um, the unfortunate victims of war would have been thrown into a common grave probably nobody really cared about the, the, the bodies there was a realization early on that this had to change but one of the rules that came in uh, it was a chap called Fabian Ware who set up the Commonwealth War Graves Commission mm. the first Imperial War Graves Commission decided that nobody should be repatriated from the battlefield so in other words you remained where you fell there should be no uh, distinction in death about ranks. So if you go and visit a Commonwealth War Graves Cemetery today, you'll find uniform graves mm. um, because you know he was very adamant about this, which which I get, I totally get. But but equally, you can imagine the poor families that that were isolated. Not only they'd lost a son, a father, uh, um, a loved one, they 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 couldn't visit them. So their their graves were elsewhere. They 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 weren't here. There were schemes after the war that allowed travel. For families, there were some supported schemes, but I imagine lots of Jersey families didn't go. So mm. there had to be something local. And um, the government thought about this and, and, and being our states, spent some time mm. arguing over it. What should we do? There was a, there was a great suggestion. Um, somebody said, always makes me smile, they should take down German George in the square, which is, of course, George II, mm. that statue, who was, who was not a, 
not a, um, a revered character at that point. He was on one of the enemy and replace it with, a, with, a, with an honest Tommy and that would be our point of remembrance. So they argued about what should be done and John Pinnell, who was the constable of St. Helier, who was a real mover and shaker through the war, um, took it in his own hands and said, look, I'm going to sort this. And he, and he put a wooden cenotaph up where the cenotaph is today in the parade. And cenotaph means empty tomb, of course. And, and it's mm. symbolism. We've lost it to an extent today, because the, but the symbolism then would have been, it's the place you went and remembered your loved one. You couldn't go to the grave. So you went to the empty tomb and, and they were all there effectively. So the cenotaph was that location for remembrance where you went and, you know, as, as any, you know, if we go to visit a loved one's grave now, we go to visit them where they lie. That wasn't possible. So the cenotaph filled that, fulfilled That's that purpose. And eventually it became a permanent, the granite mm. permanent monu- monument we see today. Now you've touched on this, moving the narrative slightly mm. um, sidewards. Um, Spanish flu, mm. obviously that's something that's mm. at the forefront of our minds, yeah. having just gone through or going through a pandemic. Yeah. Um, how was the island impacted by Spanish flu at the time? Well, you know, significantly and, and, and tragically, of course, like everywhere else. Um, Spanish flu, um, we knew about Spanish flu. It's interesting when you look at the newspaper report. Spanish flu came twice, actually. It came in two waves. It came in August, July, and it was less severe that first time around. So they knew it was tracking around the world, and they knew it was in the UK, of course, and then they assumed it would come here. And there was lots of great adverts about pills to protect yourself against the flu and and local chemists posturing various remedies because it wasn't killing people in that first wave. It was was bad, but didn't kill. Uh, And then it came again in October. Early October, it arrived, uh, and this time it killed, you know, remorselessly. I think the first family were in Hugh Street or somewhere like that, and it was the mother, father, and the daughter. Young people died and, you know, died very quickly. Uh, and it spread around St. Helier very, very quickly in, in October. It was a very short um, time, a ma- matter of weeks. But um, at first, like, it's, it's very revealing to, to look at how they handled it and we handled it. They refused mm. to shut the schools. They didn't shut the cinemas. They said, you know, we'll get through this, not a problem. And then they realized actually how devastating it was. So there was a sudden rush to stop everything, stop people gathering. Uh, but it was already here and it was very spread, um, very prevalent around particularly the poorer areas of St. Helier. So going back to John Pennell, who was instrumental in the Cenotaph move, um, he uh, did great things. If you go into the town hall today, not many people look at it, but if you go to the town hall today, on the, di- on the dais where they, they meet uh, at the end of the hall, there's a plaque recalling John Pennell's efforts during mm. the, the great pandemic of 1918. And he organized... Uh, nurses or, or helpers to go to people's houses and clean them up um, and so on. So, And then actually it spread from town to uh, the countryside and, and John Pennell again organised relief. So about 300 people dead. Um, and of course, they were still dying on Armistice Day. So, so yes. although the flu had, had was definitely in decline by then, um, Armistice Day, there were, there were still people dying. And there's some awful, tragic stories about... Um, families in early November going to bury their daughter who had died of the flu and coming home to discover um, a telegram saying their son had been killed in, in, in France. So, um, you know, real double whammies across the piece. So you, you were suffering at home and you were suffering abroad. And, and because the war continued right to the very end, people died you know, right to the very end. Mm. So the flu was just a kick in the teeth, I think, really, for, for, a society, for societies that had gone through a terrible, terrible time. And just to, to, to perhaps finish it off and, mm. to, and to, um, to complete the circle, when did things start to 
to, to lift for Jersey, both in terms of, of, of the flu, but also in terms of the economy, in terms yep. of the impact of the war on Jersey. When, when, did, when did we start to feel good about ourselves oh, again? Well, I, you know, pretty soon afterwards, I think, within reason. So I think um, it is interesting. I'm, you know, we talked really uh, at the beginning of this about the celebrations that went on here on the day of, of armistice, on the day the war ended. The day after, they held a, a, a much more formal, sombre event in the Royal Square, all the great and the good. Um, and it was, a, it was a, an act of commemoration. And I think there was a realisation that this was not something to particularly celebrate. It wasn't like Liberation Day. There were, there were the Liberation Day scenes that happened 20-odd years later, but the losses were so severe, um, you know, that, that, and that would not go away. Part, part of the healing was the cenotaph and, and servicemen's organisations and this kind of thing. But the island itself, I mean, the island itself, um, to give the absolute due to the politicians that were running it at the time, um, it carried on as a, as a, as a well-run economically successful island it was lots of struggles because of the loss of of um of manpower but mm. the island um grew more potatoes than ever before and and shipped them abroad partly because they were asked to and they found ways to do it so the island's economy picked up pretty quickly afterwards and, and actually i think that because um we won the war effectively um there was there were there was no real change in the island so what I mean by that is that there was clamour at the time for um, for better representation in, in in the states. So you know there was jurats and un, unelected representatives. Mm. That was dismissed because we'd won the war. I guess it couldn't be dismissed after the Second World War. There was a strong push for women's rights, and it did come through, but very slowly. Again, because I think the status quo was let's keep things as they were. Um, the first union in Jersey was formed in 1918. The first strike happened, I think, at the docks. At that point, so so there was the there was the nascent start of, of change, but it wasn't really um, strongly pushed through in Jersey. That remained till after the Second World War. Um, but you know, the, the island got back up on its feet pretty quickly. Um, I, you know, individually, the families clearly would have struggled and suffered with their with their personal losses. And um, but you know, we we had a growing tourism industry before the war. It got better after the war. Mm. The potatoes continued in high demand. So I, I think the island could. Um, get get over this fairly quick, and they use the commemorative ceremonies. They use the eleventh, of course, the eleventh of of November as that as that focal point to remember the, the suffering and the, and, mm. and the loss and death. And, and then I guess you could get on with your your lives for the rest of your uh, for the rest of the days. Thanks to Ian Ronane for talking with me today, and thank you for listening to the Bailiwick podcast. You can find the podcast on all the usual pod places, and don't forget to like and share. The music at the beginning and end of this podcast is I Shift My Weight by Luno. Tune in next week for more.